0: So, here's the deal. <clears throat> I moved around a ton growing up. I li- my- Becky. I- Becky was born in a hospital that is one mile from the house where she was when I picked her up to take her on a date when she was a sophomore in high school. She lived in Lubbock, Texas all her life. Not me. I was born in Dallas. Now... Beautiful skyline, beautiful city, love Dallas, born there, lived there. My memories of Dallas living there are pretty scant. I was six weeks old when we moved. <laughs> we moved to Fort Worth and lived in Fort Worth for a good while. And uh, I say a good while, how long, mom? Maybe six months, a year, year and a half. Not very long. I just know I don't have any memories of that place either. We moved from there to New Orleans. Now I do have a memory in New Orleans. I remember being on my dad's shoulders in a Mardi Gras parade where they were throwing candy. Dad caught candy. He handed it up to me. It was free candy. And I remember, even though I must have been two or three years old, I remember so vividly thinking in my brain, if they throw out free candy, why don't we come here every day? (laughs) Because that didn't occur to me. From there, we moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, a mighty town just south of Arkansas, a little bit east of Texarkana, Shreveport. We lived in Shreveport for a while. I don't really have many memories of Shreveport. When we moved from Shreveport, we moved to Abilene, Texas. It's a beautiful skyline. I put it up there. (laughs) In Abilene, Texas, I have some great memories. I remember occasionally after church on Sunday, we would eat at the A&W Root Beer, and they had those frosty glasses. Ha! that was good. Also where I remember my first church song, How Great Thou Art, which we sang this morning in worship. I remember singing it at church there. I remember uh, a number of things. That's where I started school. No, it's not. I, bad memory. Excuse me. I just crossed the line. I left Abilene and I didn't start school until we moved to Memphis, Tennessee. So in Memphis, Tennessee, we, uh, I started school, did first grade, and did half of second grade. Memphis was a great place to live. The king was still alive and living at Graceland. And during Christmas time, the yard display that Elvis had at his mansion was really, really something special that we would drive through and look at. And I remember Memphis quite well. Lots of good memories there, trying to get home by 3 o'clock because dark shadows came on at 3 o'clock. And our housekeeper would lock the doors when it came on so a vampire could not get in while she watched it. So if Catherine and I didn't get home by 3, we didn't get in the house till 3.30 when Dark Shadows was over. Um, Memphis, a wonderful place. I wonder where Mary is today, God rest her soul. Um, we moved from Memphis to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was the last half of second grade for me. I had Miss Kennedy for my teacher. She said, vegetable. Instead of vegetable. She tried to correct me because I would talk about tomatoes. And they were tomatoes. And it was a difficult move for me. It was culture shock that I had not seen. I'd never been in Yankee land before. We got one good thing out of it. My little sister Holly was born up there. And uh, so uh, we we got her and then we left. We... We went to Rochester, New York next. And Rochester, New York is where I did third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. I did half of seventh grade before we finally moved to the place that, uh, quite frankly, could be, depending on how you look at the globe, the center of the world. And that is Lubbock, Texas. Um, Oh, wait. That is not the Lubbock skyline. My mistake. Lubbock, Texas. So, oh wait, that's Hawaii. I'm always getting those confused. Lubbock, Texas. Now, (laughs) I actually used this slide this week. I did the, the... keynote uh, kickoff for the United Way fundraiser in Lubbock uh, on Wednesday, and I said, you know, why would people move to Lovick? Would it be the weather? And I put up that slide of, <laughs> uh, anyway, I traveled around a lot. My wife didn't travel around at all in terms of living different places. I don't know about you. I don't know what your journey has been, but Paul, he was a traveling dude. We went through and we looked at Paul, and we last left Paul in Corinth, but he'd gone from Antioch, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, Troas. Did I typo Antioch? No, there were lots of towns called Antioch back then. Uh, Antiochus was a, a prominent name that was around for a long time, and and uh, everybody would name some city after themselves, uh, Amphipolis, Troas, Philippi, He's been to all of these different places, some of them twice. And we last had him in Corinth where he was staying and working with Priscilla and Aquila. And this was for in, in, in history, this was around 52 AD. For us, it seems like it was 52 AD because it's been a long time since we've been doing this in this class. But it was three weeks ago for us. So what happened at the end, that's where we're going to pick up. Paul and, and uh, Aquila and Priscilla all left from Corinth and they did about a two-day sail trip over to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, if I look back a little bit, Ephesus is right there. Ooh, there it is. Ephesus is right there on the shore of Turkey. Today it's inland. It's no longer a harbor town. But back in Paul's time, it was a harbor town. There's a silting, meandering river that dumps into the harbor there. And, and it uh, silted up, and now you've got to walk an extra mile almost to get to the harbor from Ephesus. But the ruins there are exquisite. If you ever go to Turkey, or if you're ever looking for something to do, Uh, Turkish, then go to Ephesus. It's the best ruins, I'm convinced, anywhere in the world worth touring. And when you go there, this is a picture of the Agora or the marketplace. You can see the library right behind it. That two story buildings, the library, it wasn't built till about 100 AD. So it would not have been there when Paul was there. But this is the marketplace where Paul would have walked and talked. So Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, they go to Ephesus and we read about it in Acts 20, Acts 18 verses 20 and 21. I want to look at the text for a moment and start there because something really unusual happens. Okay? look and see if you agree with me that this is mighty unusual. So, after this, that's after Paul was, uh, uh, they've just had the confrontation in the tribunal in Corinth, if you remember. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At, At Kentri... He had his hair, he had cut his hair because he was under a vow. Now you're thinking, what's that all about? Nazarite vow, probably, personal one, lots of stuff written on it. We don't have time to get into it here. But I put a footnote in your lesson if you're interested. Um, They came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. On taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Now, does that not strike you as a bit unusual? Here's Paul. He's gone into this town. He is at Ephesus. He goes to the synagogue. He teaches about Jesus. They say, hey, stay a little longer. Teach us a little more. And he says, no. I just find that quite bizarre. But Paul's not leaving them high and dry. Paul leaves and he journeys on from Ephesus. Ephesus was about a two-day sailing trip from Corinth. When Paul leaves, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And he sails on down. Whoops, get him over there. There they go. He sails on down to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is one of the port towns that's used for Jerusalem. Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he finishes whatever he was trying to do. It looks like he was trying to get back in time for a holiday. We don't know exactly. Luke doesn't give us details. But something was a pressing matter for Paul because he was asked to stay to share the gospel more... And instead, he left Priscilla and Aquila to do it, and Paul left. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. From there, he goes back down, they call it, to Antioch, even though Antioch is north. And that's where we find Paul for just a little while. Something happens in Ephesus while Paul is no longer there. In Ephesus, what happens is, a fellow from Alexandria, Egypt... A Jew by the name of Apollos comes to Ephesus. Now, we read about Apollos in Acts 18, 24 through 26. And I want to read about him. Then I've got into the PowerPoint some of the points that we're going to read about. But let's just read it together first. Because this is really uh, 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 important that we look at this. Apollos was not just... Well, let's, let's read it together. You, you can decide what you think. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though, he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God. Whoops. There we go the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Greece, Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Now, Apollos. Let's put this up into the PowerPoint. What do we read about him there? Very, very little. But we've got some particular insight here that's worth looking at. So we need to know he was a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in scriptures. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and he taught. And at first... Knew only the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, from this, we get some interesting insight into Apollos that allows us to dig just a little bit deeper. And we've got some insight that's going to be even more relevant when we get to the book of Hebrews in our New Testament survey. Because a substantial number of good scholars believe Apollos may have written the book we call Hebrews. And when I say good scholars, let me throw out a couple of names for you. Martin Luther. That's a pretty good name. In fact, we'll leave it there. Martin Luther and a number of others, especially more contemporary scholars, will say more likely than other candidates we know about, Apollos wrote the book we call Hebrews. Now, where do we get there? We get there from a combination of several passages. This passage in Acts is a core part. It goes along with what we know about Alexandria, and it goes along with some references we get to to Apollos in, for example, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So it's worth talking about for just a moment. A native of Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, had the largest population of Jews outside of Judea in the world at the time. If you'll recall from things we've already covered in class, it was in Alexandria around 200 BC that the Jewish community translated, started translating the scriptures, the Old Testament, from Hebrew into Greek. So that the Greek speaking Jews and other Greek speakers could have access to Hebrew, to to the Jewish scriptures. So Alexandria is a, not only a hotbed in terms of intellectual Judaism and in terms of Jewish scriptures, but it's specifically the Greek version of the Jewish scriptures. Now by the time you reach this day, 52 AD, you've had one of the most prolific Jewish writers of the first century. His name is Philo. Philo and, after him, Josephus, are the two principal Jewish writers where we have their writings still today, a lot of them. Philo is also called Philo of Alexandria. That's where he was from. And we have from Philo his commentaries on the law, we have from philo his book on on genesis and exodus and we're able to read philo was part of a school of thought in alexandria egypt that approached the bible in a very allegorical fashion that's not to say it didn't also re, they didn't also regard the bible as true and factual But within the true facts and history in the Bible, they found allegorical significance and meaning. It's very much what is consistent Philo's school and Philo's approach to Scripture that was an Alexandrian approach is really what the book of Hebrews looks like. It's what the book of Hebrews does repeatedly with the Old Testament passages. So if you look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, if we go to the Elmo, thank you guys. 4.14. Here you've got this comment. Let's see if we can focus it in a little better. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This idea that Jesus fulfills the role of the high priest is an allegorical reading of the high priestly role in the Old Testament. Seeing it in the life of Jesus and in the deeds of Jesus. It's seen even more if we turn to Hebrews 8. 1 through 5, especially verse 5. Let's find Hebrews 8. The writer says, Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, as opposed to the tabernacle. See, it's, it's this allegorical reading of the tabernacle in the wilderness. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary for this priest to have something to offer. High priests always sacrifice in the Old Testament. So we would expect if Jesus is the true high priest, for Jesus to have a sacrifice to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Because there are priests who offer gifts according to the law... They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God. See that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. See, and, and this whole pattern of thought is one that's very consistent with an Alexandrian approach to scripture. Now does that mean Apollos wrote Hebrew? Absolutely. Hebrews? Nah. But it's someone who had an approach like Apollos likely had to scripture. And if we go back and realize, he's not only a native of Alexandria, but he's he's competent in scriptures. And I might add, the book of Hebrews, when it quotes the Old Testament, quotes it over and over and over out of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Which is what you might expect from someone from Alexandria as well. So he's competent in the scriptures. He's continually engaging the Jews with the Jewish scriptures, arguing forcefully that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and it's, it's a pretty neat thing. Now, he's an eloquent man. An eloquent man is a reference to someone who's learned in rhetoric. It's a good debater. It's someone who speaks powerfully. It's someone who speaks captivatingly. It's someone you enjoy listening to. It's someone who it's not a strain to listen to. It's someone it's invigorating to listen to. There are certain speakers in this world where I'd just as soon go listen to them speak as I would watch a TV show because they're that good. He is someone who's not, not just can speak he's he's eloquent you know it's interesting and i think insightful for us to realize if we don't know already or remember if we already know that while paul's on his way to ephesus apollos goes from ephesus over to corinth And so you've got a man who's competent in scriptures, a man who's instructed in the way of the Lord, a man who's fervent in spirit. That means he's dynamic. He's, he's, he's someone you want to be around. He's contagious. He's, he's got, he's got that magnetism, charisma. Okay. And he's an eloquent rhetorician. By the way, Alexandria, also famous for their schools of sophistry and rhetoric. And that's what he is. He's he's got that down. Now, while Paul's in Ephesus for the next couple of years, Paul's getting there. He'll be there shortly. Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. That's what I hope we'll get to next week is the first Corinthian letter. But when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, one of the things he's doing is he's trying to deal with the Corinthian problem of division in the church. And look what Paul's going to be writing within two years of this time period. Okay? If we go to the Elmo, please. Within two years of this time period, we're going to see Paul write the following. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree There be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that y'all are fussing. Well, quarreling among you, my brothers, in Lubbock, we'd say y'all are fussing. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. Or, who started, who was responsible as primary missionary at that church. Or, I follow Paul. Apollos or I follow Cephas, Peter. And then the pious ones, oh, I just follow Jesus. So Apollos goes and makes quite the impression on the Corinthian church. And you read about it in some interesting ways in Paul's letter, First Corinthians. You can read that there was a schism. You can also read Paul saying some things that that reinforce and it's just it's just interesting to me. And don't get me wrong, scriptures are the Holy Spirit's inspired word for us, but we should never forget that they're occasional, and by that scholars mean they were written for certain occasions and reasons. I mean the beauty of God is that he can write something into a time and moment in history for those people in a way where it still speaks throughout all eternity his message. But we best understand it if we first understand how it was written. And so look at what look at what Paul says here. Paul says, "When I came to you brothers, ah And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I got news for you. When Apollos came to him, he did come with lofty speech and wisdom. (laughs) That's what Luke's saying. He was real good at the lofty speech and wisdom stuff. Paul says, hey, that's just not me. I didn't come to you with that. I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you. Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. Someone who's weak is not described as fervent. In spirit, weakness and fear, I was with you with much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but... uh, Focus, thank you. My words, my speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because there is a certain danger. There's a certain danger if we're not careful in following the person who's delivering the message instead of the message. And I'm not indicting Apollos 1950 years later when he's in the grave and can't defend himself. I am indicting the way some of the Corinthians were treating Apollos. Paul's not indicting Apollos. Paul, I honestly believe, would be quick to say, praise the Lord that Apollos had those gifts and that he used them for the kingdom." Hey, look what Paul says about Apollos in this segment, in this section. Paul is quick to say, oh, where do I have it? It's in 3, isn't it? Yeah, let's go to chapter 3. Paul is quick to say, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not even solid food. By the way, if Apollos wrote Hebrews, Apollos wrote Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews wrote it around 60 AD, about eight years after this, maybe six years after this letter. And, and the interesting thing is Hebrews uses this same analogy. In Hebrews, it talks about milk and moving on to more spiritual food and meat. So, whoever wrote Hebrews, I think, had some intimacy with this letter. I'll also tell you that if the chronology is what we suspect it is, Apollos is one of the ones reading this letter. Because Apollos is in Corinth when it arrives. Or at least close enough by ministering in that area that he certainly would have had it quickly. I fed you with milk, not solid food because you weren't ready for it. You're not ready now. You're still of the flesh. There's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Because when one of you says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos. Aren't you being merely human? Paul goes on to say, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. It's not about the servant, it's about the Lord. I planted, Apollos watered, but God Gave the growth. So neither he who plants. Nor he who waters is anything. But only God. Who gives the growth. We Paul and Apollos. Are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And Paul continues on in this analogy. But it's an insightful one to understand. And it helps us understand also. A little bit more of why Luke takes a moment and tells us those things about Apollos. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. So now, Paul finally gets back to Ephesus. And Paul's on the road, headed into Ephesus, and he comes across some believers. But the believers only know about the baptism of John the Baptist. They don't even know about the Holy Spirit coming. These must be people. Now, Ephesus, by the way... Is a huge town. It's roughly the size of Lubbock. It's about 200 to 250,000, depending on whether tech's in session. I mean, sorry, tech's not in Ephesus. It's in Lubbock. Ephesus is about 200 to 250,000, as is Lubbock. And so it's, and the church doesn't meet on, on, you know, at First Baptist Church on Broadway. The church doesn't meet in big buildings like that. They're house churches. They might have some meeting through the synagogue, but by and large, you've got house churches. So it's very appropriate that in some of the synagogues, somewhere, some people had been converted by John the Baptist, by John the Baptist, by Apollos, when all Apollos knew was the baptism of John the Baptist. So Paul meets them and Paul teaches them about the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promised seal that affirms that Jesus will return. And we read about that as Paul goes in and then Paul goes from there. And, and, how are we doing time wise? Eh, we got about 15 more minutes. Okay. All of this is in your lesson. So if we don't cover it all, just take it home and read it. Um, but let's, let's look through it a little bit. If we can go to the Elmo for a moment, please. Ah, uh-huh, very good. Um, so here's what we have. Paul goes to Ephesus. <clears throat> and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He picked up something was amiss. They said, well, I did heard there is one. He says, well, and what were you baptized? They said, "Into John's baptism. By the way, what do John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? <laughs> Same middle name. Um, it's a freebie, it's a freebie, you get that when you come to church, lots of free things. So they said, into John the Baptist's baptism, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, but he was telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking, whoops, speaking in tongues. They began prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, Paul enters the synagogue. For three months, he speaks boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew. He took the disciples with him and he reasoned daily in the halls of Tyrannus, continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What happened here? Well, if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. So, Paul, uh, uh, in Acts 19, he gets to Ephesus. And Ephesus is a central location, it had the highways that connected. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, you can still see on the roads the ruts from chariots. It's an amazing set of ruins. So it was a major connecting place for highways and also as a port. So Paul used it as a base of operations for that whole area. That's why, for example, the letter to the Ephesians is not a letter just to a certain church in Ephesus. It's really a cyclical letter for that whole region that Paul will write later. But that's what Paul did. His ministry base was Ephesus. Now, it does say that he taught in the Ephesian synagogue for three months and then moved to the hall of Tyrannus. It's interesting. We can find in the Western text. say, what? That's a few lessons back. We talked about the idea that there is an, another group of, oh, of, of writings, ancient writings of the book of Acts, that's called the Western text. Where somewhere along the way an editor inserted some comments. And so we've still got some very early comments that were inserted so early we can't say who they were. But probably within the first 30 or 40 years of, of these events happening. And inserted into that western text is a comment of when Paul was teaching. Teaching. Paul was preaching in the halls of Tyrannus during the middle of the day when all the marketplace would close down for siesta. So the days would start at six in the morning. They'd go to mid-morning. It'd be hot. They'd close down. And then they'd start back up in the afternoon and go into the evening. And so Paul, it looks like, was working a full working day. And when he wasn't working while everybody else was resting, Paul used that time to teach, which is consistent with the way Paul worked. So Paul's doing this. While there, um, we've got two events that happen. We've got one that's a magic event. And this is where the sons of Sceva have been casting out demons in the name of Jesus. It's an interesting story. Um, what was that? Is that me? No, it wasn't me. Okay, if we go to the Elmo for a moment. So we know God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Even his handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left him and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, you might be saying, and we're just going to pause for a moment. We're going to talk about this passage. You might be saying, okay, that just sounds a little bit hokey. And how come we don't see that today? And does this justify those guys on TV who say, if you'll send them $100, they'll send you their holy anointed prayer cloth that they sneezed on? You know, we have a very consistent, magnificent God. And we have a God who occasionally, when circumstances dictates, chooses to do something different than we normally see from his hand. And if you need a miracle from God, you don't need to send $100 to get a handkerchief that someone sneezed on. You can ask the Lord and you can get your friends to pray with you and you all can beseech the Lord and if God chooses to give a miracle then praise the Lord but if he doesn't choose to give a miracle then praise the Lord the whole reason these are called miracles in this sense the whole reason this is in here is because it is such an unusual event in the history of the world and I have people who say to me oh I don't believe the Bible I don't believe the miracles happened And I ask them why. And they say, because I've never experienced one. To which I say, you're guilty of the same sin you're using to indict the Bible. You're saying, this person experienced a miracle and they wrote about it and believe in it. But we can't judge based upon what they experienced because experience is not a proper Judging rod. So just the fact that these people experience these miracles, that Luke saw it, that Luke wrote about it, ha! he must be deceived because they may have thought those were miracles they were experiencing, but their experience is an invalid measure. How do you know? Because I haven't experienced them. And for me, experience is a valid measure. You may not be following my train of thought, but in my brain it makes really good sense. Bottom line is, And then we'll move on. God chooses how and when to act. This is very, 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 very rare. God's doing it for his reasons, for his purposes. And our point is not to look at it and say, well, why isn't God, you know, who's, look, get on eBay, look for Paul's handkerchief, somewhere, somewhere that thing's still around, working magic. No, it wasn't the magic of a handkerchief. This was the hand of God using something that spoke to the egypt or to the ephesians. The ephesians really did believe magic was around. This is God trumping their fake magic. Magic was a cult at Ephesus. Now it wasn't the only cult. There was another cult worshipping Artemis. Artemis was worshiped and there was a temple of Artemis that was like multiple times the size of the Parthenon. It was built just outside a town on a hill. And I'd love to show you the ruins of it today, but this is the closest I can come if we go to the PowerPoint. Um, Oh, before I show it to you, we got to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I promised you that in the email, if you got my email. Here you go, Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know what that is? It's in Northrop Hall. It's a meteor. Fell down from the sky. Well, if you saw The Gods Must Be Crazy, remember that movie? 15, 20 years ago. If you haven't seen it, go get it. It's fun. It's good. That's one where the Coke bottle falls out in the wild out back of uh, uh, Africa and the people think that the gods are crazy because they threw this bottle down from the sky when what really happened was a guy flying an airplane threw it out the window of some Cessna 172. Okay, meteor falls from the sky. 600 B.C. You're out there. Now, you don't have a clue about astronomy. You may still be thinking the moon's made of tease. You don't know. You think the gods live physically somewhere up there in the sky. And one of the gods just got really mad and chunked a boulder at you. Why would the God be doing that? Well, you know, this sort of looks like it could be the God Artemis. Maybe this is, a, this is a, something I'm supposed to worship. And so they would build temples around meteors. This isn't just in the Bible. I've cited you Euripides where uh, uh, Artemis, your sister, same Artemis, God, has an altar to take the goddess's statue, which they say fell from the sky into this temple here. Um, Aristus put her on his left shoulder, marched into the sea, leaped upon the ladder, put within his good ship both his sister and the thing that fell from the sky. This is a statue of Zeus 's daughter claiming to have it. Diana, Artemis. Um, so what do we have here? In Ephesus, a meteorite had fallen from the sky and they built this great temple to Artemis, or in Roman mythology, Diana is what she was called, around it. It's the major cash cow for Ephesus because of what it is. It's a holy temple. It's got a rock that was chunked down by the goddess from heaven. And as a result, everybody used it for their bank They didn't have banks back then. They'd take their money and go stick it in the temple. Get a receipt from the the people there. Nobody ever touched the money. It was like Switzerland. It was safe. Because nobody wanted to get... Who wants to make a goddess angry when she can chunk rocks at you from heaven? Do you really want to go break into her temple and pilfer her goods? That are under her protection. The problem is, Paul had been there so long, so many people are coming to know the Lord that it's starting it's caught the eye of this fellow named Demetrius. Let's look at it in Acts 19. we're running really slow. I'm gonna, we're going to read this really, really fast about there that time. Okay, y'all read with me so I can read faster, okay? About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. I mean, he's making the little uh, tourists, kitschy things. Brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together when the workmen in similar trades and said, Hey guys, you know from this business we have our wealth. The temple was a huge tourist attraction. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul's persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods are made with hands and aren't gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrespect, but also the temple, the bank. Artemis may be counted as nothing. It's only because they regarded Artemis that the bank was secure. She may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So everybody goes crazy. Uh, uh, They stir up quite the fever. They take uh, uh, Gaius and and, uh, uh, Gaius, 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 and Aristarchus, and they haul them into the theater for judgment. And it looks like it's going to be a big. Let's go to the uh, uh, Elmo. I mean, the. PowerPoint, please. So they go in. By the way, if you ever go to Istanbul, this is Hagia Sophia. It's now a synagogue, but it was a church built by Justinian in the sixth century. Largest church uh, for a thousand years ever built. Um, These huge pillars, you can see the people standing down at the bottom of them. Those pillars are huge. Do you all see them in comparison to those people? He pilfered them from the temple of Artemis. So that's why the temple of Artemis isn't there anymore. He stole the pillars so he could build a big church. Jesus really did destroy the Temple of Artemis and the worship. Anyway, the Ephesian Theater is still there, it would seat 20,000 people. So they get hauled in front of this theater, and a riot breaks out. And I want to tell you all about it, but I'm out of time, so you have to come back. Here are your points for home. I'm still stunned over this. When they asked Paul to stay for a longer period, he declined. And I think I'm stunned over it in part because I'm a control freak. And I just think, well, I just need to do this. And there's a real lesson for me in understanding that I have a limited amount of time and God is the one who chooses how I use my time, not me. And it's not my work that I've got to see to fruition. It's God's work that God will see to fruition. My job is to make sure I'm in the right place at the right time doing what he wants me to do. Changes the burden of life significantly. Now the focus is on how do I discern the will of God? Not, well, someone's got to do it, and I guess it better be me. Next. Whoops. When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is a goal of humility for me. I don't know who I'm more impressed with. I love the fact that Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside quietly. But Apollos, what a man of God. To sit there when you're eloquent, you're wise, you're well-read in the scriptures, you're, you're effective, your ministry's powerful, and someone says, I need to teach you something more, and you learn. I love that. I want to be that way. Last but not least, there's danger the great temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. Yep, you got that right. The problem is, the temple of Artemis was nothing. It was one of those false idols that Pastor David was talking about this morning. So where do you want to stand? Do you want to stand in this world putting your money in the bank of the temple of Artemis? Neither. I want to stand with God Almighty. And that's where I want to stand. In humility and faith and purpose for eternity. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please bless the hearing of your word? And may we all humbly bow before you in worship and adoration. And would you help us serve you today with our seconds, minutes, hours, with our days. Where you want us to be, doing what you want us to do. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.